And when you're a leader and you come at education with more of a lens of, I am in this to partner with my staff, to empower my staff, to, to kind of be this person holding them up from underneath instead of like ruling from, from above them. I think that's a different perspective. Welcome to Education Rx. The education system in the U.S. is sick and we all need to find ways to heal it. I'm Holly Bronson. I'm Shannon Donaway. Together, we have almost 50 years of experience working as professionals in a school setting. We may not have all the answers, but we're looking for people who have a piece of the solution puzzle. This is Education Rx. So today we are speaking with somebody that I've known for years. I mean, I think seven, eight years. I think that's um, Anyways, we're, she is a parent and a school board president in a district that I've worked in for a long time. And so I will, her name is Kristen Smith, and I will let her introduce yourself. Kristen, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? what you do, what you're passionate about, and what kind of brought you into being a school board member? Yeah, absolutely. I'm Kristen and a local community member in Durango, Colorado. Um, I have two children. I have a 16-year-old daughter, Eden, and I have a 19-year-old son, Asher. And when they started school, I just started getting really involved in their education, started volunteering for PTO, volunteering in the classroom, just really didn't want to leave my babies. And (laughs) Followed them to school every day and one of those parents that was kind of hanging out in their classrooms, probably more time than I should. Um, But it was really an amazing experience kind of watching them go through the school system and really having like a a bird's eye view of that, you know, just from all the activities that I was involved in. I have a husband, Bo. He works at a local church in Durango and our family really, really loves this town. We volunteer for all sorts of things all around town. I've always been kind of a person that believes in volunteering. Um, that's that's important to me to give back to your community. And I think when my kids hit like middle school, high school age, they were like, please stop coming to school with us. <laughs> and I was like, man, I really still want to be involved in education. What could I possibly do? And so at the same time, my son was starting high school. Um, this opportunity came on the Durango 9R school board. And I thought, well, let me look into that. And I realized as I was looking into it, there was all these awesome like retirees on the school board and retired educators. And I thought that's amazing, but none of them were actively raising children through the system. And I thought maybe that's a voice that's missing from that group. So yeah. So in 2019, I said, okay, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring and ran a campaign and, and the Durango community was um, very kind to select me for this amazing opportunity that I thoroughly enjoy. And yeah. And I spent a lot of my time doing school board, <laughs> like a lot. Um, you're, very, but I, you're very dedicated. You really are. Very dedicated. But I also have another parts of my life. I like to paddleboard. I have chickens. I have a garden. I like to keep busy. I'm my son's full-time caregiver. So I'm going around town a lot with him. Um, my son Asher does have significant intellectual and physical disability. He has a unknown genetic syndrome, so he's kind of a mystery man. And I really got a, a good uh, kind of view of the whole K through 12 system in special education and kind of what that looks like from the parent perspective. And that really inspired me to continue my role in school board. And so I'm running again for up for re-election this next election cycle because I just these 
particularly all the kids have my heart, but the kid, the special education kids have a little bigger piece. So I want to continue, continue advocating for them in any way I can. We share that with you. We, we get to work with Asher for many, many years. We've been able to work with him. He is such a lovely human. We enjoy him so much. Yes. He yeah. He's awesome. Yeah. That's a little bit about me. Well, and so we were having a little bit of a conversation right before we got on about how it's unique for us to get to talk with a board member. We don't get to connect with many board members. And I know in some places, especially large urban areas, a lot of board members are shifting and changing. It is a lot of people who are retired or people who are maybe trying to get into local politics and support their communities. And it's so, so nice to not only get to talk to a board member, but to talk to one that's a parent, because I think that's really where the board was originally designed. Having was really designed for parents and maybe one or two community members just to support what needs to happen and be a voice for everybody that it impacts, right? That the schools yeah. impact. So it's so great that you're not just a board member, but a parent. <laughs> yes. And I, I don't have any political aspirations for the future beyond this role. You're just, not going further. <laughs> no, I really just do this. World? I don't know. <laughs> no, I really just do this for the kids. And I honestly am better with kids probably than with adults, I'm sure. That resonates with a lot of educators. Yes. <laughs> They're a little more forgiving, I think. They are, yeah. <laughs> a little easier sometimes. And you actually came onto the board the year that we had COVID. So you started in the fall before COVID hit. Correct. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I was on the board for four months before we had the full school full <gasps> nationwide <laughs> school closures. Yeah. So it was it was a wild ride in the beginning there for sure. Well, and tell us a little bit about from the board perspective, what were some of the main things that you guys were facing? Because it was a crazy, crazy time. Yeah. So like everybody else across the nation, we were trying to figure out how to educate kids from their living rooms remotely. Thankfully, our district was pretty close to having one-to-one -one computers. We were able to do a rush order and get most, I, I think every kid in our district by a couple of weeks into the school closures had a computer. We were able to deliver hotspots out to any areas where students didn't have access to internet. So that was huge. We had community volunteers just wrap themselves around certain groups of students. And we had a group going out to a particular trailer park in town where there were a lot of Spanish speaking children and helping the parents do homeschool with them um, outside at tables. And we had a really, a, a lot of community members really invested in, in the process as well. Um, so that was, that was huge. It was really helpful. It was kind of a scramble though, at the leadership, like at, the, you know, the top, the top levels, you know, for administration, it was like, should we close? Should we not close? When should we reopen? At one point we were yeah. delaying spring break and we were just all going to come back in three days. And, and then spring break kept getting delayed. We're going to delay a little longer. And so there wasn't really a clear path for any administrators across, the, across any state or across the nation maybe even across the world, everyone was trying to figure it out. But we were able to do the best we could with packets and keeping everybody employed. We didn't have to do uh, massive layoffs or anything. We were able to find things for everybody to do. Bus drivers were driving food out to certain bus stops where students could come pick up yeah. food. Yeah. yeah. We had, you know, all of our paraeducators either helping and assisting online or at the schools, like making copies of packets and 
textbooks and getting those materials out to students. So it was really a team effort. And, you know, I don't think that we handled it any better than anyone else, but we got through it. I know just having two kids personally, it made a huge impact on their K through 12 education. They don't see that as a bright spot in their time going through school. They see it as a really difficult time. Yes. And so um, that's hard. It's hard to think that, uh, that all of our kids in our country feel that way. Well, and I think especially students somewhere between maybe seventh and eighth grade, all the way through seniors, when it hit, all of those students were so, especially that middle group, right? Like the eighth through 11th grade, because it kept um, impacting them through the next year. I know my son is really resisting going to higher education because he was so frustrated with how education went for him during COVID. And that's just, I mean... There was no easy way. I don't think it was somebody did something wrong. I just think it was a really hard time and emotionally hard. It was hard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then you have actually been on for long enough that it wasn't too long after COVID that we, the superintendent we had in that district moved and we had to hire a new superintendent. And so you've actually been able to experience two different superintendents, two different personalities, you know, not saying one's bad or good or whatever, but just it's different. It's hard. It's challenging to work with people with certain types of personalities. So how do you feel like some of that experience with the two different print, the two different superintendents has impacted the school district? Yeah. So that's a tough question. Yeah. Every, every superintendent does have a wildly different personality. I mean, we're all individuals, all different people, different types of leadership styles, different backgrounds. You know, I can say right now we have a world-class superintendent in Dr. Karen Chester, who is our current leader. I really appreciate the way that she stays in collaboration with the staff. And that was a key ingredient that was missing in prior administration. She doesn't roll with an iron fist. (laughs) She wants everybody to understand why changes are needed and to be on board with those changes with a full understanding of how that's actually going to impact either the system or the child. And so I I think that's huge. I think that building rapport with staff is necessary and working in collaboration with staff and not seeing yourself as above them, you know, and I think across the state, we see this, um, we're members of the Colorado Association of School Boards and we go to these school board conferences and we see these superintendents and it's like, they're in this position as, as not a person that's in charge of a child's education, but in charge of a company, you know, more of that CEO lens. And that's a different lens to come at education with. Right. And when you and when you're a leader and you come at education with more of a lens of I am in this to partner with my staff, to empower my staff, to to kind of be this person holding them up from underneath instead of like ruling from from above them. I think that's a different perspective. And our current superintendent, I really see her kind of more leading in in that in that way. And I really appreciate that for sure. Yeah. And I have seen that too, working in the district now for what has she been here for three, four years? Only two. Oh, this is going into um, her third year. Two? Two, okay. Two years. So third year. Okay. Yeah. I have definitely seen that as well. I have to give her props for all of yeah. that. I've seen her walking through schools and in classrooms and filling in for paras. So that's really nice. The first yeah. year she was there, I was still in that district. And I remember her like, substituting for special education teachers. And I mean, wherever there was a hole, she's like, I can help you. Let me help you fill it. And I know for 
all of us who had been in that district for a long time, that was, whoa, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> it was very different and it was really yeah. cool to see her do that. Yeah, she's definitely got a, a people-centered kind of approach to her leadership style. You know, she gives people her cell phone number all the time. <laughs> like, don't do that. You're going to get a hundred calls a night and she'll take them, you know. And that's the thing with super, most superintendents are, are people that like to work kind of 24-7. So she doesn't mind it, but she's like, no, if I can help somebody, you know, I, I want to be available to them. And I really appreciate that real hands-on, just kind of accessible person that she is. You know, she's in the classroom. She's accessible to parents. She came here and she started not only a parent advisor, superintendent parent advisory committee, but a Spanish-speaking parent advisory committee, which is huge cool. to really make sure that she's hearing from all, all kinds of parents. Um, she also meets with students. <laughs> and do you feel like that's an impact we've seen with families, that they are appreciating that? relationship building? Absolutely. Yeah. She also brought on what we call family liaisons. And so we have family liaisons are a staff member who's really appointed to make sure that certain types of families in those schools are really connecting with the school. And that is huge in education, because if you have families that understand what's going on in their child's education, they're going to be far more successful. Because the parents are going to continue working on things at home. They're going to talk to their kids about what they're learning at home. And for a long time, we had a lot of parents who just didn't feel like they could access anybody at the school. So now for our Native American families, we have a Native American liaison. We have Spanish-speaking parent liaisons. We have free and reduced lunch, slow socioeconomic parent liaison that we just brought on this year. Just have someone who's like kind of a point person for them to go to and ask questions and get information. And those liaisons don't just kind of sit at a desk waiting for someone to come in. They are like out there meeting these parents at pickup and drop off and going over to their homes if, if they want them to and really, you know, developing relationships with the parents so that they have this trusted person they can go to. And that's, that's huge because family school partnerships, if you look at the research on that, when you have that kind of locked in, your students just start soaring. Like they're, you know, I don't want to say that test scores are everything, but state test scores and internal data that we take on, you know, any kind of internal assessments we do on students, they are important because it is an indicator of how the kids are doing and how they're growing and how they're learning. And when you look at school districts that do that, when they have these solid family school partnerships, usually the kids are also performing at a really high level. That's so wonderful. I think in our first season, we talked with Therese Moore. She's up in Seattle, Washington, and we talked about how schools can engage families and get them more active. And that's exactly what you guys are doing. I love that so much. I think it's, like you said, huge for student success. And I think we're living in a time where people are feeling very disconnected from public education. And, and there are a lot of there are multiple camps, but I feel like there's a lot of negativity going around where people are feeling post-COVID, the last few years, teachers leaving, or people feeling like their student isn't getting good education and they're seeking options. And public education was created to make sure everybody had good, free, accessible education. And so we need to figure out how we can all sort of get together and make it better again. And I think what you guys are doing in your district is a huge piece of that and such 
a cool way for other administrators and other school boards to hear ideas of things that they could do. And that's part of why we wanted to do this educational administrative series is to really talk about those things that are not working and then find ways to make it work. So it's really cool to hear about the liaisons. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll I'd love to report back like in a couple of years when we've had them all on board for two or three years and just say like, yes. look, look, but I could already see it. You know, we we just went over student results for our state CMAX test at our last board meeting just the other night, and we can already see some of these groups that have historically just kind of underperformed their white peers are now, that's not the case anymore. Like they're all, you know, like actually growing and blooming and blossoming in their proficiency, but not just in their proficiency, because proficiency is like one thing, but the growth, right? Yeah. You want students to know more at the, at the end of the year than they did at the beginning of the year. And that's where we're seeing the most gains is that we have these, we call, you know, we have these opportunity gaps is how we refer to it as a school board, because it's not, you know, it's not that the student hasn't achieved because there's achievement gaps. And that's one term that, that folks use. It's maybe that we didn't give them all the opportunities that they needed to succeed. Mm -hmm. So we are taking more responsibility on with our terminology Mm -hmm. by by continually referring to those gaps as opportunity gaps. And we we're seeing gains and it's a little bit here and there, you know, it's like this one subgroup of students in this one grade level actually, you know, grew more than this group, you know, or, or we're on par with growing, you know, with their, their, this other group, it's really encouraging to see. So that's something that we are as a school board, we are like heavily, heavily into results like that. <laughs> and maybe that's just the five of us right now, but if the, if the students aren't successful and they're not growing, then like, what are we doing? You know, right. What's the whole system for? And so that's something we spend a lot of time on in our school with our school board business. I feel like maybe not during the first initial COVID lockdown, all of that, but the following school year, when our district, we had a lot of teachers who left, we had a lot of teachers who were feeling sort of burnout and having a hard time. And during that time, I felt like, our board was really proactive about reaching out to staff and saying, what do you need? What's happening? How can we fix this? What do you guys need from us? And I know there were specific board members that really, you know, reached out to individual staff members. And it was just a really cool thing. And I feel like I had, for the most part, a really good experience with the school board in that district. I felt like it was really positive. And I felt like there were a lot of parents on the board when you were on, I think there were two other people who maybe their kids weren't still in, but had come through that district. And so I felt like people were very connected to it. Now it's a small town and I know that's maybe harder in a big city, but I thought it was really powerful to have people who were really connected to the district and really cared and really gave voice to the staff. I think that's a big piece of what the school board does. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that there was historically in our district, a real divide between administration and staff at the school level. We recognized that in COVID (laughs) plans were, plans were made for teachers to return to the classroom and teachers were never consulted in those plans. Unfortunately, it was just an oversight. The board did step in at that point and said, you know, we really need admin to, to collaborate with teachers this isn't going to work. You can't just ask them to do all these things and not get their feedback as to how that practically is going to work out in their day to day. And so um, we were able to really form some real good, strong connections with 
our unions, we call them associations in our town, but there's a support staff union and a teacher's union in our town. And, you know, I think that for a long time, the board just didn't want to get involved in the unions. You know, they were there and they would come to our Mm -hmm. meetings, but there wasn't a lot of connection. And we kind of all said, well, why? (laughs) Like, we don't have to be like against each other. We don't, you know, it doesn't have to be board and district against the union. You know, we can actually all work together and come to consensus on what we can do. And we may not be able to give them everything that they want all at once, but we need to hear what it is that they want and why, and really understand and have really positive conversations about it. It doesn't have to be this war, you know, between one, one entity and the other. And it's like that across the state and especially in the larger districts that teachers union against the district. And we have a really good relationship right now. And that's because we've sent a board member to actually be a part of negotiations and to be a part of the union meetings with the superintendent. And I think that that's been really meaningful for the members, for the teachers and for the support staff. They've given us really great feedback. Like that really changed the game when you guys stepped in and just said like, hey, we're we're not against you. We're here to listen to you. And we want to understand and work together. And I feel like we're, we're headed down a really great path right now in our collaboration. Well, and I want to, I know we're, we're making it sound like it's all, you know, butterflies and yeah. over there. <laughs> so uh, let's talk for just a minute. And I, I will be the one, cause I'm not in that district anymore. So I will be the one to say the superintendent we had in that district prior to the one we have now, the one that you have now is great. And the one we had before, it's not that he wasn't great. It's just, there were some things that were really hard and I know a lot of staff felt like promises were made and then never followed up on. People were asked for their opinion and then nothing happened. I know myself, I had, at the time, our special service providers had no union because it was a small enough group. It just wasn't happening. And it was new to the district. In Colorado, there's these BOCES, which are sort of region. Yeah, regional special service providers, like a co-op sort of, and every district pools money for them and they go and serve. But Durango got big enough that it couldn't do that anymore. They needed their own service providers. So we moved over. And so it was just different. And we were a couple of years in and we were having some issues that people in our department were like, you know, we really should be part of the union. How can we do that? And I was one of six people who were participating in trying to make that happen. It went very badly for me with that superintendent. He would literally see me coming and like point at me and say, we don't do caseloads in this district, Holly. And I'm like, I didn't even say anything. Like, I don't know. It was just, he really had, he just did not care for me. And (laughs) I get it. I think that a lot of the frustrations and stuff, whoever's the voice, sometimes it falls like it's their concept that they're the ones saying those things. But I really do think that we had some struggles there when we came over as special service providers. We had some struggles and the district was having some struggles with this person. And I mean, I hope they're out in the world and they're doing wonderful. I think they have a heart for kids, but it was a very different perspective and maybe more of that CEO perspective. I wasn't behind the scenes with him, so I don't know. But talk about how you guys took this situation where it was kind of ugly. People were really frustrated and feeling disgruntled, I guess. And you guys found a new superintendent and you kind of merged. And now things are really starting to flourish. They're starting to be more unity, more cohesiveness. That's huge. And there's a lot of people listening that want to know, how can we do that in our district? 
Right. I think that, you know, there comes a time where trust is broken between this happens for every school board. Trust is broken between the school board and the superintendent. And that's a really hard situation to be in because if you don't have that trust, it's hard to proceed. And trust can always be repaired, right? You can both work together. Both parties can agree to work together. In this situation, that just wasn't the case. And so there were there was some broken trust there. There was a natural uh, movement. You know, the superintendent resigned. There was natural turnover. I would say. And I think the way that we that we went about it was to really reflect on what kind of leadership style did we have? What kind of leadership style do we want? And as we began to reflect, we thought we're only five people can't make this choice on our own. <laughs> and so we went out to the community and we did 12 different huge stakeholder Zoom meetings because it was still COVID at that time. And we talked to students, we did student Zooms, we talked to support staff, we talked to the unions, we talked to PTOs, we talked to teachers, we talked to parents, we had these different focus groups that we put together, of 15 to 30 people. And we said, what do you want in a superintendent? Tell us what you want, what's important. And then out of all of those focus groups, we had this huge document of like everything everybody wanted. And we started to highlight where where are things overlapping? What are people really saying? We talked to the administration team. We wanted to know what the, uh, you know, the district office folks wanted. And we were able to come out with some really strong personality types, really strong themes for kind of actions that people were hoping for. And we took those into our superintendent search. And then we thought, well, we can't stop there. So we we narrowed it down, you know, ourselves to about the top 10 applications. I think we received 29 or 32 or something like that. So we got it down to the top 10 and we go, okay, we still like the five of us can't make this decision on our own. And so what we did is we had very diverse group of stakeholders, community members, parents, teachers, administrators, who we invited in to do resume review day. And they read the resumes and they gave us their feedback. Like, who do you want to work with? The, you you were all trusted people. We had a really diverse group of stakeholders come in. We had Spanish-speaking parents, all sorts of different kinds of people to represent all the different diversity that we have in our community. And they looked through all the resumes and we whittled it down a little bit more to the top five and then brought three people out to interview. And again, we were like, the community has to weigh in. So we did this whole superintendent Zoom form where people could watch us interview them live. <laughs> like how nerve wracking for these superintendent candidates, yeah. right? In fact, our current superintendent said like, that was the craziest, most nerve wracking thing <laughs> like ever. Wow. Um, and then we also had them interviewed in, in front of different groups of stakeholders. You know, we invited about a hundred really select stakeholders, county commissioners, city manager, you know, owners of really prominent businesses across town. And we had them, them submit questions and these candidates were asked those questions on the spot. And That's so awesome. Yeah. So we went through a pro a real long, robust process to really figure out how do you get ju the just right person for your district? And I got to tell you, Dr. Chesser, from the beginning of the 29 or 32 applications was number one on my list. And she so stood she stood out. Yeah. Uh, above everybody. And what really stood out was that she was very in touch with the student body. And mm -hmm. that was huge for me that she had students write her letters of recommendation. And I thought that 
is really yes. unique. And that, and, and they really knew her. These weren't just like, Hey kid, you know, if you want to get into Princeton, please write me a letter of recommendation for my job. It was like, these students really knew her and they really loved her and she had really impacted their lives. And so that was really, really stood out. And then of course she had all these leadership qualities and skills that the whole community had agreed on, you know, that they wanted. And so when we got down to the top three, you know, we really, we, we had surveys online for people to fill out community, any community member could fill out, which candidate did you like best? And we took all that to heart and, and we're able to narrow it down and, and selected Dr. Karen Chesser. And I think that's why it's such a great fit for our community is because really she wasn't the choice of five board members in a private room. You know, she was the choice of the entire community. So that that's kind of, I think, how you make that shift from different type of leadership style that your community, maybe your teachers or your parents, or maybe everybody's not happy with it. Maybe it's just not working anymore. Maybe it worked for some time and then it didn't. And so how do you make that shift to a different leadership style? You, you got to really go out there and figure out what does everybody want? What does everybody need? And, and then I think you can find the right fit. Well, and I love how you're giving examples of how you created this cohesive information from so many people. Everybody got a, and I remember being a teacher there and we got to put our word in about what we liked and who we liked and why. And I, I felt like the process was a really fair and community building process for everyone, not just the educators, but the community. And I think a lot of people in our country think, oh, if I'm not an educator or I don't have a kid in school, education doesn't impact me. But it really does because yeah. our students today are the people who are going to be running the businesses and the leaders and communities and doing all the things in the future. So it really does impact us all. So the fact that you got community people also involved is so huge. And it's lovely in a small town when you can do that. But I think it's possible to do it in larger towns too when you have a district. I think it's possible the way that you're explaining how you did it. And I think it's so lovely because other school boards can hear that and know that maybe they could replicate that. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think any big decisions for the community, you got to include everybody for sure. Well, and so you've said some things about how you guys as a board have really started to make some moves to build stronger relationships with staff and family. So what do you think are some of the traits of board members that you have now that is making this work so well? Well, you know, when I joined the board, I was the only parent of, of students in the school system. But shortly after, another board member was appointed who was also a parent. And shortly after, another board member was appointed who was also a parent. And then there was an election and a, a couple more came on. And so now we have a, a school board that's five parents of students in the Durango community which is really unique. It's not always that way, but right. we're not just five parents. We're five like really active parents that have been really involved in our, in our students' public education. And just with students in general in the community, like one of our board members is a Boy Scout leader. We have a soccer coach, you know, we have two of three actually former PTO presidents between all of us, you know? So we were all really involved with kids. And so I think when we come down to decisions, of course, we're all here to support the staff as well, but we're very student focused. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that that makes a huge, huge difference. It's it's not about politics. It's it's not about whatever's, you know, trendy in the moment <laughs> somehow. 
it's about kids and what's best for kids in our community. And I think that we talk about that at almost every board meeting. We also have student board members on our board because we all really love students. Every year it gets harder and harder to narrow it down. We used to have two student board members, then we had three, now we have four <laughs> because we love kids so much. We like, we can't cut so many out. So it's it's been incredible to have their voices as a part of our board. They're not voting members, but they are definitely contributing to our conversations in in real time in our board meetings. So when we talk about testing, last the other night, they were like, you know, what would be really helpful is if you talk to the kids about why we're taking these tests, mm-hmm. why they're important. What do you do with this data? What does it do for our community? What does it do for our district? And we were talking about how it's all interrelated, right? If your schools are doing really well, then that promotes your community. People want to move there. You know, the price of houses goes up. And so all of those things, which, you know, can be good or bad. But all of those things are important to building a strong community. You really want to have a strong public school system. And the kids were like, you guys got to do better at messaging this. So we learn so much from the students that that are on our school board. They give us a lot of feedback like that where we go, okay, we need to make a change here <laughs> for sure. But I think as far as the school board goes, that's what makes us unique and different in a really cohesive group is that we are five people who just really care about Durango children. Is that something really common on school boards to have student members? Like, I know that you're involved throughout the state and go to meetings and things, so. No, it's not. So there are a handful of districts in Colorado that do this and probably a handful of districts in each state. It's really unique. And some people will have students from like student council come in and give like a student council report. And that's actually what used to be the case in, in Durango is that student council members would come in and talk about prom and what they were doing and you know, all the plans that they had and how they're going to decorate. And there's actually a student council, uh, it was a student who said, you know, I think we could give you guys more, more input than we're giving. We're just kind of giving this report. And that's how the program was born in our district quite some time ago. So it was a student, student derived (laughs) interest that they wanted to have more input beyond the school board. And we've just kept it going and we continue to strengthen that program every year for a while, you know, even when I would first start on the board, they were just kind of there, but they didn't really have like anybody mentoring them. Now we have like a full mentorship program where a board member, one board member is assigned to the students and they work with them every month on developing their leadership skills and just talking through different issues that are important to the students, helping them understand how to interact in the board meetings and how to have their voices be heard in the community even. So it's it's very unique and something we're all very passionate about. And that what great awesome. skills to be teaching kids. Absolutely. Yeah. Positive leadership skills. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and thinking about where we're at right now in the world. And now we have a lot of artificial intelligence with chat GPT and a lot of programming and curriculum that is technology-based. There's a lot of conversations starting to happen about what should education actually look like? You know, should we be focusing on grammar? Should we be focusing on understanding how to vet information that you're getting from the internet? Should we be? And I think that human connection of really mentoring kids on how to be leaders, how to, whatever it is that they're interested in. If they want to be construction workers, if they want to be daycare workers or childcare workers, you know, whatever it is that they're really interested in, creating learning that makes them feel a mentorship component to it, because I feel like that's sort of missing in education. And I think we've just gotten so big 
you know, as, as a world, we have so many people and we are losing teachers. They're saying that it used to be up until 2019, approximately 11% of college freshmen, 11.8% of college freshmen declared education as their major. And as of last year, it's only 4%, 4.2%. So we've cut more than in half how many people are going into education and now we have a lot of educators leaving and so we're having these larger classrooms and less you know one teacher trying to manage more people and so there's all these issues but we've got to get people excited about education again and not just hearing from their parents that are teachers or educators don't do that you don't want to (laughs) we've got to help find and what you're talking about is exactly what we need we need people to see how powerful it is and how rewarding it is, not just for the student, but for you as an adult and a board member that you're getting to do something that feels really meaningful because it's actually helping this child mold their life for moving forward. And I think that is phenomenal. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There is a huge shortage of teachers, as you know, nationwide. And so, yeah, if our little program in Durango inspires any of them to go into education, that would be phenomenal. You know, the verdict's still out. So (laughs) maybe it'll inspire other boards to do something similar. That would absolutely would be amazing, right? We've got to take every little step forward we can. And I know you and I had a very brief conversation. We had last season, we had Dr. Pasi Salberg from Finland on, and he is a world-renowned educator, and he was actively involved in Finland really changing their education system. And during the time that he was a part of that, they rose to number one in the world for education systems, as well as academics. And so when we look at the system, it's how well it's meeting all the needs of, you know, everything from, you know, food quality food for kids to academics to extracurricular things like music and play and all of those things. So they had multi-level responses where they were number one. And so we asked them to come on to say, what are we doing in America that we could change? And it was really interesting. Shannon and I spent a lot of time reflecting about how he said, you know, when we decided not to start academics until kids were second grade or so, And let them spend the first few years really playing and doing learning kind of play. Where did you find that research to tell you that was a good thing? Oh, from America. Oh, (laughs) when we don't, when we only have this percentage of the day, which is much smaller than in the U.S., where we do core academics. And then this larger percentage where we do home ec and music and theater and all of these things. Well, why did you decide to do that? Oh, we had research from the from the U.S., And he said, you know, the U.S. has this amazing research and you're the only country that doesn't use it to form your public education. Yeah. And it's just heartbreaking, right? And I know you know a lot about that system and we're really inspired by that system. Can you share with us a little bit about what you saw and, and what your inspiration was? Sure. Yeah. I, I've kind of been a huge super fan of the Finnish education system for a long time. Because of the preschool that I sent my daughter to, she went to a parent co-op play-based inclusive preschool. So there were students with disabilities in her preschool. There were, they had scholarships for students who were low income. So there was a, a variety of different cultural backgrounds, different economic backgrounds. And it was a partnership between the county and, and the school district. And what was so cool about it was that they, they did learn. 
they were not not learning in preschool, but they learned through play and it was more fun and they were more engaged. And so I saw little boys who were really busy, you know, and couldn't sit in a chair if, if you tried to make them. They couldn't even sit in the circle in circle time because their bodies are just right. wired to move when you're a little boy and you're that age. And there was opportunity for them to explore education through movement. And so explore learning concepts while they're while they were on the move. And the whole preschool classroom and playground was designed to be a learning environment that you would engage in through play. And so I went, okay, well, why aren't there kindergarten classes like this? Like, where am I supposed to send my daughter to kindergarten? Because all of a sudden the whole model changes, right? You choose this really unique preschool model and then that doesn't exist. And no, kind of looked into Montessori and sure, that's a great system too. But in, in the area we were in and here in Durango, you had to pay for Montessori education. You know, that's a private school. That's not a public school. And so I really started looking at like, what is going on here? <laughs> like, and what are other countries doing? And I remember when she started kindergarten here in Durango and I went to the first parent teacher conference and her teacher said, what preschool did she go to? And I go, well, she went to this preschool when we lived in California and it was a play-based, you know, learning preschool and it was really inclusive. And she's like, yeah, she doesn't know anything. I was <laughs> like, well, I'm sure she does. <laughs> I know she does. <laughs> you know, how, how did you assess her? Like, why, oh. you know, why do you think she doesn't know anything? And she goes, well, you know, we sat down and we do these flip cards and they have to, you know, say the letter, the word, you know, at the rapid speed of, of oh. you know, who knows how many cards per minute. And she failed <laughs> because she wasn't used to learning in that way, sitting at a desk with someone flipping cards in your face, you know, <laughs> but she was like, she doesn't know her ABCs. And I'm like, well, did you ask her to sing them? <laughs> did you ask her to like, when she's looking through a book to like point them out or point them out where, what, what could she see that starts with an A around the room or something? And it was like, no, this is how we do it. <laughs> Real kids sitting behind a desk. And she basically like failed kindergarten. You know, they didn't hold her back, but at the end of the year, her teacher was like, well, she's cute, but there's not a lot of hope. <laughs> and I was like, what is going on? My daughter, I know, I know my daughter is very bright and she's a high school junior right now. She has straight A's. She was a very bright child. They were just assessing her in this really like rote way that was like, this is the way we do it in our society. And I was like, she's just not going to respond to that, you know? And she was a late reader. She started reading really proficiently in second grade. And that was because we let her explore reading like as she was drawn to it, you know? And she's still not a kid that really likes to read, but this forcing, you know, you have to read, you know, these booklets every night after you've been at school for seven hours for a five-year-old is, is like inhumane <laughs> in my mind. So something has got to change. Our system does not work for sure for five-year-olds. It's not working, but maybe for all the students, even as, as my kids have gone through high school, they come home so tired, so tired after their long day at school. Yeah. And what's really sad is that kids right now, they want to all zone out on their phones, right? I mean, probably your kids too. And I think that we have these zone out devices now and they've become more, more important for students because they just need a break. And it used to be that kids took a break by like playing outside and mm -hmm. going on a hike, uh, going down by the river and throwing rocks in. And we live in this beautiful outdoorsy area. And honestly, our kids are too tired after school to enjoy it. And that's really sad to me. I would love if they had 
shorter school days. But we're up against, you know, Colorado Department of Education says this many hours and this many days the kids have to go to school. And it's like a state level change, a nationwide change has to happen there for us to be more like Finland. Well, and I think in our country back in the 80s, we interviewed Dr. Andrew Ho from Harvard. He's a, tell me what he's called again. He's a psychometrician. Yes. Is that right? You did. That's how I can remember. (laughs) But he was talking about how standardized testing that we do annually came about because in our country, parents were feeling like they didn't trust that teachers were teaching students what they needed. And that was back in the 80s, early, mid 80s. And here we are more than 40 years later, and we're still using government to dictate things like hours in school. And, And I get that we need to have parameters. I think it's the same thing as why we have laws to make sure that we're all kind of following a basic amount of parameters. But I think part of why teachers are really losing hope and love of what they're doing is they've lost a lot of agency that they can really be creative. And we have lost sort of how we're teaching kids based on what the world is now. And the world isn't what it was in the 50s or the 70s or the 80s or the 90s. Like it is so different. We have moved forward with technology and other pieces of our culture so rapidly, we really need to go back to the drawing board and say, what is education? What should it really look like? And Shannon and I were having a conversation. We, I heard a gentleman named Matt Boudreau who on several podcasts where he's talking about education and he is one of the founders of the Acton, A-C-T-O-N Academy. And it has a really unique model and they don't introduce academics until like second grade. I think they kind of do more of a finished model. But then when they're teaching things, math concepts, language concepts, they do groups and the groups can be across multiple grades and ages based on what they're learning and where they're at and what they're interested in. And they support each other. The students support each other. And they have students who are cooking the meals in the cafeteria and they're managing younger students as, you know, support staff. Like it's just a really interesting, I'm very curious to learn more model. And I don't know that you could necessarily do it at that level in a public district because you have so many people. But what I love about it is that they're looking at something completely different and disrupting this, you know, system of cogs in a wheel you know, all moving in this machine instead of really looking at the individuality of students, like you're talking about with that preschool and really letting kids find how they learn and, and have opportunity to use those skills. Cause the kids that are moving around doesn't mean they can't learn. They just need to learn in a different way. Like you were saying, and circle time is one of my least favorite things in preschool and daycare. (laughs) Crazy as an occupational therapist, I constantly, you need to come help Billy because he can't sit in circle time. And then I go to their circle time and I can't sit through it. It's boring and long, yeah. painful. So I'm like, come on, let's let's mix it up. Let's do something out of the box and see if we can start really getting people excited, especially students excited about learning again. Yeah, absolutely. And exploring their interests, you know, inquiry-based learning. When we moved here, the reason we selected the elementary school that we did for our kids was because it was an international baccalaureate school, which is inquiry-based learning. And the cool thing about that is state standards say you have to learn about weather 
at a certain age, certain grade. Well, with inquiry-based learning, you can ask the kids, what kind of weather are you interested in? So they're still going to get that content that the state requires, right? Especially because they're all going to inevitably choose different kinds of weather. Someone's going to be interested in tornadoes. Someone's going to be interested in thunderstorms. And then they're going to have a time of sharing their interests together. So they're going to get all the weather content that they need from each other and how empowering to learn from your peers, you know, not have it be a teacher driven classroom where all the content you need is coming from your teacher. And that was a, we had a bunch of IB schools in our district and it it took a lot of, of funding to train the staff to be IB certified teachers. And eventually it just went away. It was too expensive. But those kind of innovative models are are huge and they are actually transforming our classrooms. And there's a bunch of different systems out there. IB is just one example of different ways, um, methodologies of teaching, different ways of of delivering curriculum that although they do have to sit there for seven hours because the state says so, they can learn in in a more unique way that's more geared toward the way that children grow and develop. I think that the way that we have it set up in our standard public school classrooms does not not fit with the way that kids grow and develop, right? They right. they they aren't meant to have little bodies that sit still for seven hours a day at certain ages, maybe even in high school. I know it's hard for high schoolers to th- sit through all of their classes by the end of the day. And they mm-hmm. we, we hear feedback all the time from college students. College is so awesome because you get more breaks. Yes, <laughs> right? And you, wow. get, you get a lot of time to do learning and projects on your own where you can yeah. schedule that in a way, you know, and be in an environment, listen to music if you want, whatever that sure. makes it easier. Yeah. So uh, it's, yeah. Interesting that college has become less grueling than, than K through 12 education. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Well, yeah. one thing that I did not have on the list of things we wanted to talk with you about, but I, it honestly just came to me now. I know that we're hearing as education is changing, as our world is changing, especially post-COVID, how we're seeing the social emotional component of what's happening for students in schools on the rise. A lot of kids really struggling with things like whether it's sexual identity or just how emotions and how to manage those behavioral issues because students aren't maybe figuring out how to manage those emotions. And a lot of the burden for addressing those social emotional component of how to manage what are emotions and what are your emotions that you're feeling and how do you manage that? A lot of that is coming into schools out of necessity because we have kids that need it and we're here to do that. We're supposed to support them in learning whatever it is they need to learn. And I know that there are people out in the world that feel like educators are overstepping by doing that or they feel And as an educator, I also know that I see a lot of students whose families are two income households and they're just struggling for time together and they don't really have time to sit down and talk through some of these things. Or maybe they don't feel like they have the skills to help their student. Are you seeing in your district families that are frustrated about this, are angry about this? Are they happy about this? Do you feel like it's on the rise? Is your staff struggling with this? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so our yes to everything. So, you know, I think with families, it's it's there's a misunderstanding. There is a political landscape out there that is using social emotional learning as like a bad thing, you know, a bad term. It's a it's a bad word, something you should be against, because there's a concept that within social emotional learning, we're training kids to be a certain way or to be comfortable with certain things. 
that parents don't want them to be comfortable with. But really what social emotional learning is, is giving kids a base of regulation for their emotions, a support when they, when their emotions are really big or, or they're dealing with really hard things, real mental health challenges. We're giving them the tools that they need to cope with all of that, to do the best they can with all of that, tools that they need to regulate themselves so that they can learn. Because a child cannot learn if they're hungry, if they're thinking about they were cold last night because they don't have a place to live. If there's a lot going on at home, mom and dad are getting a divorce and it's a big thing, or they just feel really bad about themselves, they can't learn. And so we have to address that first. We have to make sure they're fed. We in Colorado just passed legislation where every student gets free breakfast and free lunch now. And I think that's huge. Now, I don't know how the state's paying for all that yet. That <laughs> verdict's, verdict's still out. We're still waiting for that to be figured out. Um, but it's huge because students cannot learn if they're hungry. In the same way, students cannot learn if they don't feel good about themselves or what's going on in their lives. And so we have a pretty robust social emotional learning curriculum that we use K through 12. It varies by age. It's appropriated by age. It sticks to the state standards for you know what the state would expect that we would engage with kids. We're not pushing any kind of agenda on kids. There's no gender identification agenda or anything like that. Our social emotional learning is about making good, healthy choices, about knowing who your supports are at school, knowing how to how to regulate your emotions, how who to go to when you when your emotions are too big. And we have certain students who that that kind of general curriculum that we're offering is not enough. And so we have a hub um, therapeutic program also in our district, which is a program to take the kids who are most in need with mental health challenges, connect them with physicians at Children's Hospital Colorado remotely, connect them with other local agencies around town that can help support those really, really tremendous needs that they have for social emotional regulation and and for mental health needs. We started that program under our former superintendent because there was a need, even before COVID, there was a need for students to have more supports, more interventions. Our world has become really hard for adults. And so you can imagine how hard that is for a child to go through it. It's different than it was when we were growing up. It just is. It's harder. That program, you know, has kind of grown, which is not, was not the intention to to grow it and add more and more kids every year. But through COVID, it became a necessity to to have more and more kids be a part of that program. So most kids are just very part-time there. They go to get services two or three times a week. And then we do have a handful of students that are full-time in that program because they just need that much attention and intervention right now. And the hope is that they're all going to graduate from that program. And we do graduate kids every year out of that, that kind of level of service back to just working with their school counselors and interventionists at their schools, because the hope is that we'll be able to get them to a place where they they can learn alongside their peers and feel really okay about their day and what's going on in their lives. But yeah, it's huge. Mental health <laughs> challenges is, is huge. And I think when we say social emotional learning, we mean we want our kids to just be okay enough to learn and to feel feel okay enough about themselves to learn. It's not a political thing. It's not a gender identity thing. It's Mm-mm. about kids being able to show up and, and do their schoolwork be- and feeling okay enough. And I don't want to say great because I, I know it's really hard for kids right now in all of our communities. And I don't think there are a lot of kids that feel great every day. It's just a hard world to grow up in right now. That's true. It's true. 
Well, if you were going to have a magic wand and make some changes in public education, what are a couple things you would love to see change? Oh, uh, yeah. Number top one. Three. Would be, <laughs> well, <laughs> oh, top three. Okay. Well, I would I say mean, there's probably a, a I know, we could all be like and this and this. And <laughs> yeah. I would say number one is inclusive education for students with disabilities. I think it's insane that we still have special day classrooms and specialized classrooms in our country. We've gone so far to include all these different subgroups as a society, you know, like it is okay to be gay. It wasn't okay to be gay when I was growing up in the 80s. That was something that was not okay. People didn't talk about it. It wasn't, maybe they did, but not in school for sure. We've we've made these huge strides to be really inclusive of other cultures. And I think that that's huge and important. Yes. And I think it's it's super important for us to see ourselves all as one community. But we have this group, this population of student in our schools that is still in separate classrooms across most school districts, across most of our country. And those are our special education students. And I got to say, it's it just doesn't work. It doesn't work to separate them out because then they don't gain the skills that they need to interact with the rest of their community ever. And if we are to include them, this magical thing happens, which is this mutual benefit. Not only do the special education kids grow and learn and thrive alongside their typical peers, right? Their gen ed peers. The gen ed peers also have this opportunity to grow and learn in their own way and including someone that's maybe wildly different than they are. And what happens is friendships can happen. Community can happen. And a little bit about just our own journey through this as parents, you know, when our son was in preschool, he was in this amazing inclusive preschool in Montrose, Colorado. We thought it was great. And we moved to California shortly after he was done with preschool and they wanted to put him in a separate class for kindergarten. And we, we said, why? Like, why would you do that? Like it's kindergarten. Like, why can't he go to kindergarten? And, you know, we, we fought and fought and we're able to get him in at recess, you know, with the Jenna kindergartners. And then, you know, we moved to Durango when he was in second grade and really wanted him to go to his local neighborhood school. And, and Durango was like, well, we're not sure because all the special ed kids go to a special program over at this elementary school. I said, well, why? <laughs> He'll never meet kids from his neighborhood if he goes to school across town. You know, it, it doesn't make sense. And so we advocated that he would go to the local elementary school right down the street from us. And he did. And then we pushed and pushed and pushed all the way through middle school and high school, which it sometimes was a real push for him to be in a high school chemistry class was a real push. But let me tell you what happens when you do that. Now we have a kid who's 19 years old and he can sit in an academic setting and behave appropriately, understand the routine of academics, what he's supposed to do. And he just sat last week through two college classes. He typed on his computer when it was time to type. He did the activity when it was time to do the activity. He interacted with his peers. On the college campus, he ran into some kids who he knew at Miller Middle School years ago <laughs> who happened to remember him who are now going to the same college he goes to. So inclusion really can transform a child's life. They can go further in education. They can pursue different dreams. There are, of course, jobs for people with disabilities across all of our communities, but a lot of them are limited to you're going to bag groceries, you're going to be a greeter at Walmart, you're going to take tickets at the movie theater. Mm -hmm. His dream is his dream is to be a teacher. 
So what do you do with a kid with severe needs who wants to be a teacher? What are the next steps? And I honestly think he can do that because of inclusion, because he knows exactly how to interact in a classroom, because he's had years and years and years of exposure. But that's not every child's story in our community, in the state of Colorado, in our nation. Most students with disabilities are put in specialized programming. They're given limited inclusive opportunities. Maybe they get to go to PE or art class. Mm -hmm but that is not going to give them all the skills that they need to pursue their dreams to get to what to what do they really want to be when they grow up what do they really want to do how do they want to give back to their community and those are things we need to be asking ourselves is are are we doing the very best we can for students with disabilities are we setting them up for real meaningful futures right because of course they can get a job someday somebody might hire them but is it going to be meaningful to them I don't know. So I'm I'm really passionate about that. I think that's that's key in our country. We got to figure that out. We we can't have this separation of people. It's segregation. It's really no different than what we were doing way back when when we separated people because of the color of their skin. In my mind. Yep. So that's number one. <laughs> and you know, Shannon and I are right there with you. We actually our second season, we had eight episodes, and it was a hundred percent focused on inclusion. And we, in episode three, interviewed Dr. James Robinson, and he was telling us all that he's part of a program at a university where they've done a ton of research on it in Indiana, and they are really pushing states to move to the inclusion models that they're doing. And they have all the research that says it doesn't just benefit the kids that have disabilities. It benefits general education students significantly. Their grades go up their behaviors go down. It's amazing. So anybody who hasn't listened to that episode, he had great information. Check it out. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I would say secondly, we just got to rethink our whole system, you know, just a little task. Um, But you know, the, the whole (laughs) going to school, I'm interested to see the data on these schools, school districts. We have several around us who have moved to four day school weeks. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested to see, you know, we haven't made that move yet. We have a lot of a lot of families in our community who really need that, that care for their children five days a week because of their jobs. And so because of that, because of our family's needs and what they've communicated to us, we haven't switched to that yet. But we have some districts around us who have. Yeah. And I'm interested to see, does that help with teacher retention? Does that help with student outcomes? It does that one extra day of just really being able to not stop learning, but learn in a different way, really explore the world around them in a different way. Maybe they'll read books, maybe they'll go down hiking by the river. You know, there's a lot of ways we can engage in learning outside of the classroom, you know that. So I I would love for, for there to be more research and data on that whole idea, but shortening the school days or shortening the school weeks, our whole society has to come alongside that, right? Because if parents still have to do a five-day work week, it doesn't work to do four-day schools, four-day school weeks. And so either we need to have different hours for all of our businesses across the state and the nation, or we need to figure out how to, how to accommodate the care, you know, that parents need for their students in those times where they still have to be at work. And that's something that I don't think was intended with public education, that public education would become the care center for children mm-hmm. while parents were working. I think that back when public education was started, most families had one parent who stayed at home. Yeah. That's that's no longer the case and we've never adjusted our system. 
since then, right? Right. And so we we really have to think about how are all of our communities caring for these children and what is the education system's responsibility and what is the parents' responsibility and how does the community help support families so that they can make a living still and care for their children? Because it's become incredibly complex, especially in our community where we're a mountain resort town and it's really expensive to live here. And and so you've got families that are really, really struggling to to figure out how to do it and leaning in on the school system to to take those hours as hours where they can go work and support their family. So yeah, I think that that's, that's something we all have to look at. It's, it's too many hours for the kids. I can tell you that mm-hmm. my kids are exhausted. And now my college student is, is actually feeling a lot better. His health is actually improved, which is wild. You know, it's only the first week of college, so we'll give it some time, but just that overall feeling of, of, I feel like I have enough energy, you know, throughout my day, it has improved even with, even with his college job and his outside of, of college activities and his coursework. So I think that that's something to take a look at. I don't know who's going to look at it, but I'm interested to see when the data comes out what the four day school week looks like and how our communities could adjust. What if we only had to work Monday through Thursday? (laughs) I had a business for a long time, therapy company, and we went to a four day work week and my employees loved it. Our sick time went way down. Uh, People trying to take time off and stuff went down. It just, and we scheduled people. So they sort of overlapped. So our business was actually open for 12 hours. Um, a lot of families needed therapy services before school. So we opened at seven and we stayed open till seven in the evening for people who needed after school therapies. And so we, people were on shifts where they were either the early shift or the late shift, but man, everybody loved it. So yeah. I mean, that's my one small experience, but I'm saying it was great. No, I think it could go a long way for staff retention as well. So I'm interested to see how that works out for the districts surrounding us that have made that shift you know, are they having the same kind of teacher turnover that we are and staff turnover, or are they able to really hold those staff positions, you know, solid because the staff are feeling like they have enough rest and time to plan too, right? Because I don't think they're always off on Fridays along with the students, but then they have like a whole, can you imagine having like a whole day for a teacher to like plan every week? It'd be great. That's amazing. Collaborate with (laughs) special service providers or other people. Yeah. Get yeah. And just, yeah. Look at student progress, look at data, like make new plans to kind of either steer the course this way or that way for particular students. It could be huge. So anyways, it's just too soon and, and not the preference of our parents to, to make that shift in our district. But I would love, you know, if in 20 years, our whole nation just kind of went that way. Cause I, I can already see that it probably is going to work out really well. Well, we're asking all of our guests this season, and we're hopefully going to be doing this as we move forward. But can you tell us what do you believe? I I was reading, I should preface, I was reading Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why, and he's talking about as businesses and corporations, how it's so important to really know the why behind what you're doing more than the what or the how, but to start with understanding why you're doing what you're doing. And I think in education, it was originally started to create skilled workers in our country. And so we've changed so much in so many years that what do you think is the why for public education? Sure. I would say 
the why is that it gives an opportunity for every student to pursue their dreams, you know, and they're all going to have different dreams. They're maybe going to dream to be a firefighter. They might dream to be a nurse. They might dream to be a worker at a grocery store. And all of those jobs take a certain amount of skill and organization. And what public education does provide is some content knowledge, but also just relationship skills, working with other people. How do you do that? Communication skills. And we started this program in our district called Portrait of a Graduate. Some people call them soft skills, but (laughs) really, I think they're necessary skills in today's landscape and any job you have. You have to be able, especially with their kids who are on their phones all the time, you have to be able to have opportunity to learn how to look people in the eye and communicate appropriately to do teamwork, um, to work through differences that you might have. Those are all skills um, to be a leader in your own way, you know. Of course, not every kid is going to be, you know, in leadership someday, but I think every kid can gain leadership skills that are necessary so that they don't have to go to their boss and ask, you know, where should I put this Apple shipment that came in? <laughs> they can take initiative and and look and see where maybe shipments have been put before and and do that. And I think that all at any any position that our students end up in, I I just I just hope that we've given them what they need to pursue their dreams and that they can be successful in the workplace or whatever they decide to do because they have this great foundation of content knowledge and, and skills. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. I just feel like you put a lot of things verbally, the way that you expressed it was so beautiful. I love it. And it's so cool to hear about all the wonderful things you guys are doing in your district. And I know I have really loved getting to work with your son, but also getting to know you and your family. And I think you're not only wonderful community members, but I really appreciate your dedication and service to the school district. I'm happy to do it. It's a joy, actually. <laughs> um, I might be kind of a kind of a school board nerd at this point. But <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. We need those. We need I, those. I really love it. I just I really love making sure that the kids are are the center of our work. Well, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, we will hopefully get to talk to you again someday. Maybe we can talk more about inclusion because that is a conversation that needs to keep going for many, many years. Sure. We might need a few podcasts for that one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was a really great interview. I enjoyed talking with Kristen so much. I do too. It's been, I don't know, I've known her for so long and we've done so much together. So she's kind of like a, an old friend. Definitely. I would say, especially now that her son has graduated and we don't get to see her in that role as parent anymore. And I'm not even in the district anymore. Like they still keep in touch with me on Facebook and have texted me when they were going to come to town. Like they're just w- lovely people, but yeah. I love how she... I think a lot of people don't know when she came into the board, she really dug in and worked hard to make some really positive changes. And I think it shows for where they're at now and some of the cool things that they're doing. Yeah, they are doing some great things. Yeah, I mean, across the board, she's, and most of our interviews have talked a lot about collaboration, but, you know, her, our district is actually doing it, especially with that interview process for the school and uh, superintendents, you know, getting parents and and even community members and business owners around town because it is a small community. 
And they included the teachers and the staff in the district too. Yeah. So it was really everyone that was impacted, which was everyone. <laughs> yeah. And I love that they're doing the mentorship with the students that are yeah. participating in the board. I think that is so powerful. And every school board should be doing that. Every school board should be doing that. Yeah. And it doesn't sound like very many are that she huh. has seen within the state. And I love that that district has a school board that's 100% parents. That is powerful, very powerful, because they're so in touch with what is needed and they're talking to the other parents on the regular. And so they really can hear from staff, but from families and students as well, what is needed. And I love that. I think that makes it a really meaningful board for making decisions. Yeah. And I'm glad that the president of our school board is looking at what's going on in surrounding communities and like waiting to see what happens and then kind of eager to use their research and their experiences to better our district. Right. Well, I hope that as you continue to work in that district, that you get to feel all those good changes. And I hope that people yeah. are listening and are, are maybe they're not on a school board, but they're a parent of a student in a school or they're an educator in a district and they're wanting to make an impact and they want to start talking to parents about getting involved and maybe they can encourage them to listen to this episode and hear about the impact they can make as a parent, as a school board member, and maybe we can get more parents involved in improving schools. And it goes so well with our motto or our catchphrase. What is it, a motto or catchphrase? Yeah. <laughs> Either. <laughs> Together, Together, we can do better. We can do better. You guys come back next week for our wrap up on administration in the schools. And I think we have Dr. Will McCoy as our wrap up. So come back and hear the good things he had to say. We'll talk to you later. Bye. All right. If you are watching this or if you are listening, please, please, please hit the subscribe button. Right, Shannon? Oh, she's telling you, hit that subscribe button. This is right how there. we do what we do. So please, please support us by subscribing. Thank you.